Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. It's quite something, this letter, isn't it? (laughs) We've got some of the most shocking images of the New Testament, like confrontational Jesus, I will spit you out of your mouth, my mouth, we'll come to that in a minute. You've also got some of the most beautiful depictions of Jesus' love. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I mean, in the same letter, these things are here. So Jesus is throwing everything at this church to change their direction. But what I want to do is, is, is go through what he does by just going through each verse of of this letter and seeing how he goes about wrenching this church from one place to another place. And I think there's uh, five five kind of things that he does, and we're just going to go through them one step at a time. Let's start in verse 14 with the the first thing Jesus does. He he says says this, write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. Jesus, right at the start, is restating his authority to this church. Every letter that we've had in this series uh, has uh, started with a a revelation of Jesus' character. And we've seen all sorts of things about Jesus so far. We've seen that he's the one who walks among the churches, that he's the first and he's the last. He died and he rose again. He's got a massive massive sword coming out of his mouth. His feet are like burnished bronze. His eyes are like fire. He's holy. He's true. He opens doors. I don't know if you remember any of that stuff from the, the sermon so far. But this is the, the kind of culmination of all of them and the grandest reveal yet. You could uh, focus on this. Uh, he is the faithful and true witness. That's, that's weighty. That's really important. The beginning of God's new creation. We could talk lots about that. But I'm just drawn by this just very simple phrase. He is the amen. Short, punchy. Just think about that. He is the amen. What does that mean? Well, amen, I guess, as most of us will know, is the word we, we often would end prayers with traditionally. Often that's the case in the Bible as well. And you could say, therefore, that, that Jesus is the last word, the final word on everything. I'm sure that's in there somewhere. But actually, I think more importantly, that almost behind the scenes would be, this title up to this point has only ever been used of God himself in Scripture. When it says the, the amen, that's a title used of, of God. God as God, God the Father. And this is how Jesus chooses to begin this letter here. What he's doing right at the start, he's giving information about who he is, but he's making very clear, more than he has at any point up so far in Revelation, that he's, he's God. He's underlining this outrageous claim that Christians have believed for 2,000 years, that this guy who walked the earth, who died and was rose, again, rose again and went to heaven, is God himself, is the creator of all things. That's how Jesus starts here. Listen, if we want to live worthy Christian lives that move in the direction that God wants us to move, we should start in exactly the same place. We should hear this first of all. Jesus as our God, not Jesus as our friend. I think, well, what? How does that work, work out? We'll come to Jesus as our friend in a minute. Jesus is our friend. We see that in this passage, but it's not where we start. We, we don't start with Jesus even as a family member. Of course, God stoops down to us to present himself to us as father. That's so important. But you know, it's not where we start. We start with him as God and with us as his creatures. We remember that there is a gulf between us and him. Because the incredible surprise, and it should be a surprise of Christianity, is that he crosses that gulf and brings himself close to us. 
But we've got to remind ourselves regularly, regularly and over and over again, that is an act of kindness. That is not our rightful state to have Jesus as our pal. No, we must come to Jesus first as God. The one we make no demands of, the one we deserve nothing from. We come firstly not in familiarity and not in entitlement, but in reverence. And actually the Bible uses a stronger word in fear. And the Psalms and the Proverbs would remind us over and over again that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. And it's not a phrase that's um, it's particularly, it's never particularly trendy really, but it's not a phrase that people would focus on much, but it's vitally important. If we want to be wise, if we want to serve God faithfully, if we want to grow into the people he wants us to be, we recognize that he's God, we're his creatures, and we revere him, we fear him. As Beth talked to earlier to us, as brought that word, we worship him. That's our primary calling. We're worshipping people. We don't sidle up to him and make demands of him. He's coming as the one who has authority and as one uh, that demands, at the very least, the Laodicea's respect and attention. He sets the bar there to start with. That's what the tone is here. First thing he does. Second thing he does, he warns them. Strong warning too. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Right. What do we do with this then? <laughs> Here's the bit that, as we read through, probably struck out with you most. It stuck out with me when I first heard this. I remember as a kid thinking, what? Is this really Jesus? I will spit you out of my mouth. I mean, I think we have two. Let's, let's lay them out. We might have more problems. But I think we've got two main problems here. Okay. First is this, is what, how do we understand this lukewarmness thing? Because it seems, Jesus is saying, it would be better for you to not know me at all than to know me a bit and do some Christian stuff. It just seems like, well, I get your point, but surely that's, how does that work? How is lukewarmness better than coldness taken one way? I think that's a problem. I don't know if anyone else has asked that question before. A yeah, couple of nods, yeah. Um, but I think the bigger question really is, why is Jesus so rude? I think that, that, that would be the, the bigger question for me. Um, why is he being so offensive? It sounds incredibly harsh. So let's deal with the water question first, and then we should be able to flow onto the next one. Yeah, um, that's how we do things. Um, okay, what does he mean by lukewarmness? Well, I think a little bit of local knowledge helps us here. And you've got to remember, there's this poetic imagery being used. So therefore, you, you've got to there's many things this could mean, and it's meant to mean a number of things, it's meant to elude us to all sorts of different directions. But I think we ground it in what, um, in, in the local information about Laodicea, because it's quite clearly a reference to the, this place. You see, Laodicea was a, a city in kind of southwest Turkey, uh, as we, we call it today. And it had some strengths, we'll come on to them later as a city, but it had one major weakness, and that was its water supply. Its water supply was seen as completely in inadequate. And it was seen particularly inadequate when contrasted with its two neighbours, uh, uh, Colossae and Hierapolis. Now, for the Bible geeks here, uh, you'll find that in the book of Colossians, these three little... Uh, cities are all mentioned together because they all had churches in them and they were kind of church chums, okay? Colossae, Hierapolis, Laodicea. And um, Hierapolis and Colossae had really good water and Laodicea didn't have very good water. And you'd never guess what, the water in Hierapolis was really hot and the water in Colossae was really cold. Now why was that good? 
Well, in um, Hierapolis, it was good that the water was hot, the hot springs they had there, because it was seen as having great medicinal value. If you had ailments, uh, you could go, go to the, the pools and the baths, and it would, it would uh, make you feel better. So it was medicinally valuable. So you went, you went a little trek over to Colossae, you'd find they had a very cold water supply, which was very useful for the obvious reason, uh, as drinking water. It was really refreshing. Um, so that was useful water supply. But in Laodicea, Kind of in the middle, and you're probably getting where this is going now, the water was literally lukewarm. And there was loads of it about, but it wasn't refreshing to drink, didn't have really any medicinal properties, and so it was regarded as largely completely useless. And I think we could go a number of ways with this image about lukewarmness. I think the main one, the key one, is it's not about temperature necessarily, it's about usefulness or uselessness here. I think that's what's being highlighted it's not so much that the spiritualized at the wrong temperature, but for these Laodiceans, their Christianity was appearing to be almost completely useless. It had no positive effects at all, or at least very few. And we see this from how Jesus spots their lukewarmness. I remember hearing many sermons on lukewarmness. I thought, well, how do you judge lukewarmness? Surely that's something very internal. Is, is Jesus doing an x-ray of their hearts at this point to find their lukewarmness, their emotional state? Maybe he's like monitoring how excited they get when they hear a worship song. And if it's like, yeah, and lots of shouting and dancing, no, not lukewarm. But if they're like, hmm, that's lukewarm. Okay, maybe it's that. Maybe it's how interested they are by theology. Okay, when I make geeky references to scholars from the 19th century, which I'm not going to do today and try not to do. Do you go, yeah, let's do it. Well, this person's not lukewarm. Is that how Jesus spots lukewarmness uh, or hotness or coldness? No, no, no. Much, much simpler than that. How does Jesus spot their lukewarmness? Well, he says it at the beginning. Uh, He says, I know all the things that you do. Some translations, I know your deeds. He detects their lukewarmness quite simply by looking at how they live. The Laodiceans' confession of faith and their involvement in their church was proving almost useless, it seemed, in producing lives of costly love for God and love for their neighbor. They might look the part. They might listen to all the right talks in just the way most of you are today. Yes, very good. They might sing all the right songs. They might even see them in tune. Who knows? But there was no noticeable effect on their lives. Like the lukewarm water in their city, which was no good for drinking and had no obvious medicinal purpose, their spirituality was close to being completely useless. So that's the lukewarm bit. But surely that doesn't demand Jesus being so rude, so offensive. I mean, surely he could have phrased this a bit bit differently. You often get the impression with verses like this, oh, I do, where you, you, you read it in the Bible and then it's like Jesus goes, oh, I did say that, didn't I? I was a bit, of a bit of an oversight. I hope no one notices that. Or he wants to scribble it out, but it's a little bit too late. Is that what's going on here? It's, it seems very extreme. But no, Jesus doesn't want to scribble this out. This is incredibly deliberate. It's meant to be extreme. That's the whole point. Jesus is trying to get a rise out of the Laodiceans. And actually, when we take these things on, go, that's a bit rude. Sometimes he's trying to get a rise out of us too. Let's face it. He's got a bit of a track record here, Jesus. It's not just revelation either. Let's, just, let's, let's try about this one. Matthew 18, verse 9. If your eye gouge, causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Oh, no, did I really say that? Sorry, don't write that down. Peter, what have you done? No, he meant to say it. He was deliberate. Well, this one, Luke 14, 26. If, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Wow. 
In both of those cases, in all of these cases, we should not take what's being said purely literally, important. These are figures of speech. But we also can't just wipe them away and ignore the force of these statements. Jesus is being deliberately offensive. He has that tool in his arsenal and he's prepared to use it when necessary. He's wanting to grab his readers by the shoulders and shake them. He's wanting to shake us if we need shaking. He is communicating a depth of displeasure about what's going on and also a corresponding urgency that there must be a change. This is really important. I don't know about you, but this image in Revelation 3, it works for me every time. I'll be honest, I don't want to get spat out of Jesus' mouth. I don't want to be spat out of his mouth literally. I don't want to be spat out of his mouth metaphorically. I don't want to be spat out of his mouth symbolically. I don't want to be spat out of his mouth poetically. So whichever way I read this, he's got my attention. Hope he's got yours too. And once he's got the church in Laodicea's attention, he then starts bringing them some home truths. So he restates his authority, he warns them, and then he gives them some pretty honest, or I should say brutal feedback. Verse 17, you say I am rich, I have everything I want, I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Again, a little bit of homework is helpful here. Uh, John, who wrote Revelation, and uh, Jesus, who's speaking through John, uh, knew about the natural springs in Laodicea, that's quite clear. Um, But they also knew about the socioeconomic conditions in the city because for all its water problems, this city was known as a wealthy city uh, in those days. It had a thriving textiles industry, which I'm sure is some of you think, ooh, how interesting. Some of you think textiles, what's that? Uh, But they did. That would have got them a lot of money. They also had a developed banking uh, banking system in their city and they were seen as kind of very well off. I'd be thinking, I was trying to think of what places in England might be this. I I was thinking kind of uh, Kensington. That's reasonably well off, isn't it? I don't know. Maybe. Not all of it, but, you know. You're in Birmingham would be this. Probably Edgbaston, actually. Yeah, Edgbaston. It's the Edgbaston of the... Or Sutton Coldfield. Ah, Solly Hull, even better. Right, we got it. We know it. Let's go with Sutton Coldfield. Uh, really good. Um, it was known as being well off. And here, we find probably the source of the problem. Now, again, we need to be really clear on, on this. I'm not going to do a full teaching on the Bible's view of money. But the Bible is really clear. There's nothing wrong with being rich. I don't know if you realise that, but the Bible teaches that clearly. In fact, physical possessions and wealth are often presented as signs of God's blessing in the Bible. But at the same time as that, the Bible also is very clear that riches and wealth present significant challenges to us in following Jesus in a radical sense. Those challenges are real to the Laodiceans 2,000 years ago. And they're very real to us today living in Birmingham in 2022, whether we're in Sutton Coalfield or not. Now, wealth, I think the reason for this is that wealth kind of presents itself as this sort of saviour, doesn't it? Wealth sort of says to us, look, 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 I know life's really insecure and there's lots of things to worry about, but if you've got wealth, wealth will save you. Wealth can protect your future. Wealth can protect the future of your loved ones. And once you get wealth or you get some wealth or you even get your mind on that track well, then it's very easy to start relying on it, to start basing your security and your confidence on what you possess, or thinking, well, if I could possess more, then I would be more confident, then I would be more secure, then my life would be going better. And we start putting our hope in our wealth. It presents itself as a sort of saviour. This is why Jesus said, you can't serve God and money. You can't, because they're they're alternate saviours. 
We still, if, you, if you're in that situation, you fall for that lie, and then you find yourself with a degree of wealth, you start to say exactly what these letters say and say, I'm rich. And what does that mean? I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. I don't need to look outside of my wealth or possessions for anything. Everything else is just extra, but I've got the wealth I need. And this is an awful, terrible mistake. And we, we can see that in many ways. Let me just think about this for a moment, because it's not true. Wealth does not give us the type of security and satisfaction that it claims to give us. It doesn't make us content. It doesn't ensure us ongoing health. It can't protect our children or our friends or our family. It just can't do those things. There's a deeper problem here, I think. It's not just that wealth will fail us. It's that if we put our hope in what we own, we won't see any need to put our hope in the one who can really satisfy us and protect us and fulfill us. We won't put our hope in Jesus. You can't trust God and money because if you trust money, you won't bother with God anymore. Why bother with him? Because you've got your saviour already. So Jesus gave them a slightly different perspective of their situation to the one that they had. And again, see him as a shaking the shoulders moment. He'll wake up. You've got it totally wrong. You say I'm rich. What do I see? You're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This is incredibly strong and offensive language again. But again, it's to evoke a response. Please understand, Jesus is not saying this, rubbing his hands together with glee, thinking, I've been looking to put my boot into you for a while, you lot, put you in your place. Not in the slightest. He's saying it because these Laodiceans have been completely hoodwinked by what Jesus says in Mark's gospel is the deceitfulness of riches. Totally fooled. And they have to see the reality of their situation. Yeah, they... They might have lots of money in the bank, but they do not have the resources that are required to live the lives that God wants of them. And they have no right then to be self-sufficient and proud and complacent. No, they need to be humble and desperately reach out to God for help, as all of us do, whatever our bank balance is. And that's what then Jesus offers them. So having given them this honest feedback, he then comes straight in. And the next thing he does, he generously offers them his help. Next verse. So I advise you to buy gold from me. Gold that has been purified by fire. Then you'll be rich. Then you will be rich. Not like you thought, but actually rich. Also buy white garments from me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness. An ointment for your eyes so that you'll be able to see. When, I remember this back, at, back to school again for a minute. I remember with these cocky year 12s, um, and I'll be honest, I did take some glee in this, if I'm being honest. I'm not like Jesus, okay, in that regard. You see, one of the ways I would try to get them to where they need to be, I would sit down with them, and I would be at great pains to show them why this collection of words that they'd handed in was a terrible A-level essay. <laughs> and there'd be lots of red ink involved and lots of kind of uh, hyperbole from myself. And sometimes it ended with me ripping it up in front of them and putting it in the bin. <laughs> and because, and, oh dear, I'm no longer a teacher. I won't go into what I end up happening at the end. No, just joking. I'm left to my own accord. Um, but but I, I go through that with them and try to convince them that that E that I gave you was justified. I know you've never got one before, but that's why. But immediately after that, the minute I could get them to realize they're not very good at this, then I'd be coming and go, look, I want to help you the best I can. And those are the kids who weren't coming to my after school like 
revision lessons. They weren't coming to the holiday lessons. They weren't coming at break time to check things out. They just weren't because they thought they were good enough. The whole purpose of the, that exercise was to convince them, you need to ask for help. You need to ask for help. If, in a sense, I, I wonder if in life, the, the, biggest, the, the, the biggest thing I've learned in life is that I need to ask for help. I don't know if you realize that in life yet. We need to ask for help. We cannot do it on our own in any way. And I knew that I could, as a teacher, help them improve. I knew I could help them reach their potential in the, in this, in the subject I was teaching. And I think, again, the same is going on here. Yes, Jesus has got hard words for them. But if they accept those words and turn to him for help, he has everything they need. Jesus' offer here is incredibly generous. He's put in the verses. It says, come to me and buy gold and clothes and ointment. And it seems very transactional. But we've just, let's face it, we've just had a pretty stinging assessment from Jesus of what he thought their spending power was, haven't we? <laughs> you are poor, miserable, wretched, all of this stuff. Let's not pull the wool over anyone's eyes. This isn't buying anything. These are free gifts from Jesus. He's offering these completely free to these people, out of the generosity of his heart. All they need to do is recognize they need them, that they need his help. And that generosity, that grace of that help that Jesus offers comes from a very specific motivation. And it's in the next verse, and I think it's the key factor that ties this whole passage together. This is what it says. See if you can spot it. Just one word, really. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. It's just there. It's one word. And I, like I said, I think it's the most important word and detail here. Jesus loves this church. You might be thinking, well, where is Jesus at? How does he feel towards them? Well, he's, now he's, he's saying, he's telling us like, quite clearly, he loves this church. Without this word, everything else here would just simply be, uh, at best, just pragmatism to get a problem fixed. It would be the, the badgering of, like a, of a really harsh boss. But with this, the threats and the warnings and the brutal appraisals can be seen for what they are. They're expressions of love. The sharpness of Jesus' words here aren't a sign of coldness and distance, but of closeness and care. And this care then, amazingly in this passage, from what we've seen, now leads to one of the most memorable images in the whole Bible of Jesus' care and his love and his availability. Verse 20, very famous verse. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. And we will share a meal together as friends. Wow. Verses used in lots of contexts. Strangely, I don't know if you know why this is. It's completely removed from the rest of the, <laughs> the letter. I wonder why that is. But I think in contrast to what we've seen before, it's even more powerful, actually, this verse. This is a verse that's gripped imaginations for 2,000 years. It's inspired paintings in the subjects of countless sermons. Here we have a painting, you can't see it very well. Actually, this one's better in this, this projector. Holman Hunt's uh, classic painting of Jesus at the door. Um, I'm sure many of us have seen that or similar things before. And it, yeah, it's, it's grabbed hold of people. We see here Jesus coming close to us. Even though we regularly fail him, even though we, we're lukewarm at best, he's not coming bashing down this door. No, he's knocking, gently knocking. Come on, I'm, I'm here when you're ready. I'd, I'd love you to let me in. I'm here. I'm not going to break in. I'm going to wait for you, but I'm here. I've got everything that you need. But actually, imagination, like in this painting, is so often caught with Jesus at the door. 
And that's where the image starts, isn't it? But I think it, the real joy of this verse is found at the end of the verse. And it's the possibility that he opens up. Look where he ends up. It's, it's not just that Jesus knocks at the door and you open the door and it's a traveling salesman there going, want some gold, want some ointment, want some robes, do you a deal. Like, that would be a good, that would be a good thing. If those are the things we need, great, fantastic, thanks Jesus, particularly because they're free. That's not it. Where does he end up? He ends up in their house. He wants to come in and be with them. He wants to be at their table. He wants to be in the heart of their lives. He wants to even come as a friend. I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. What is the prize that Jesus is so keen for this church not to miss out on? It's himself. That's the prize. He wants to be with them. He wants them to be with him. He knows this is what's best for them, and he knows that they are on the verge of foolishly turning away from it. The amazing contrast in this passage, I don't think is so much, I will spit you out, to I'll come and eat with you. Well, that sounds like a contrast. I think the contrast is, I'm speaking to you as the Amen, the God of heaven. Whoa, holy, 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 and I'm the Amen, and I want to be your friend. That's the contrast here. It's amazing, incredible offer, incredible possibility. And just when you've got ready for that, he comes in with something that lays another layer on it straight away after. This is how Jesus continues. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Again, so much we could go into here. I wonder if your mind instantly goes to, ooh, the throne. How, how interesting. Power can be mine. What does it mean to sit on Jesus' throne? You know what? Really good question. Uh, lots of study can be done reigning with Jesus. Love that sort of stuff. But I wonder if first we need to go where I think the most important thing here is not the throne. It's who's on the throne with us. Or should I say who we're on the throne with? Look, those who are victorious will sit with me. They'll sit with me. Well, I don't, I don't really care. Like, wherever you're sitting, it could be a sofa, it could be a stone, stone, stone pavement, it could be a throne, but it's with him. It's exactly the same image as before. The, the prize here is to be with Jesus, to be next to Jesus. And that's the threat of the passage as well. Notice the difference. The real forceful threat was to be spat out. It was to be propelled away from Jesus in pretty unpleasant fashion, really. That's the danger. But what's on offer is a drawing closer. If you're offended by the image of being spat out, I want to encourage you. No, Jesus doesn't want you to be far away from him. He doesn't want to propel you away from him. He's, he's giving that image so that you don't end up there because he wants to pull you close to him. He wants to be at your dinner table. He wants to grab your hand and pull you up onto the throne he's sitting on. And that's the future that Jesus wanted for the Laodiceans. And it's the goal he wanted them to be captured by utterly, to change their ways. And it's such an incredible goal. As we've seen, he's willing to throw every tool in his arsenal at them. He does it not because he's being mean, because he loves them. And it's a goal I think he wants us to be captured by too this morning. He finishes uh, the letters. He does each of these letters. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Listen, I said at the start, this letter written to a very specific church at a very specific time. Uh, these Laodiceans were expected to have ears to hear, but it's no coincidence that we get this letter too. And we get the Spirit's voice speaking to us through this letter as well. And uh, the question is, will we listen 
And will we understand what God is saying to us here? Just to be clear, we, we hear this heavy, heavy warnings and heavy kind of corrections. We need to be aware that not everything that's relevant to that church will be relevant to our church. Not everything that's relevant to some of them will be relevant to us. That's just how, how it works here. But I'm sure some of it will be. And I want to end by giving us each a chance to reflect on how, what God is saying to us, what the Spirit is saying to us through this letter. He might be shouting very loudly at us in this letter, as he did to these guys. He might be gently whispering to us. It might be challenge. It might be provocation. It might be reassurance. It might be encouragement. Probably it's all of those things together.